0: and welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. My name is Haley Vandenberg, the Communications Assistant here at High Point Church. I'm not your host for this episode, but I'm popping in to let you know that we had some technical difficulties this week in creating this podcast, but there's a lot of great content that we would love to share with you. There are a couple of places in the beginning of this podcast where Nick's or Aaron's voice was cut, so if an answer to a question seems cut short, that would be why. Nevertheless, we are so glad that you're here, and welcome to our new series, Image, The Weight and Wonder of Being Human. As this podcast starts, Nick will explain what it means to be a part of the Christian doctrine of creation and what it means to be made in God's image.
1: The concept of what it means to be a human being is part of the Christian doctrine of creation, but it's also its own body of knowledge that we call in theology, anthropology, which we'll define in just a minute. But the idea is, is that um, everything that we participate in in our spiritual lives, what we believe about God, how we relate to each other, everything in our lives, is related to us, and we're humans. And so, in some ways, it's it's literally everything is related to this concept, right? And the most fundamental Christian notion, the the most capacious one, or the like, the large capacious means like large, large, a large view of something that takes everything in. I often use the word comprehensive, so you'll hear me say that in this podcast. A comprehensive view of humanity, or capacious view of humanity. Catholic scholars tend to use the word capacious in whatever. So the, the point is, is like if you take this bigger view of humanity, it the, and you say, what do I? What's the word I put on top of it, right? That says what we are to God, or, or what God has made us to be, to be spiritual creatures, the imago Dei, or the image of God, that we're made in God's image. That concept is, in some ways, the catch-all for this broader understanding of what a human being is. And so for Christians to understand what it means to be made in the image of God, whether they like to say the Latin imago Dei or not, is is super fundamental to everything we believe about God, salvation, the church, our lives, everything. And we'll get to that at the end about, like, you know, what are some practical examples of this? But um, the answer is everything is the practical example. Because everything that we do, we do as human beings. And if we get what a human being is wrong, we'll get literally everything wrong. And when I was in seminary 20-something years ago, um, Don Carson, one of my professors, said, um, he, he said this, he said, you know, 20 years ago, so that would be like 45 years ago, right? He said, you know, when you, you, you go to universities, it used to be they would ask good questions about the resurrection of Jesus or about something from the Bible like that Jesus said. He said, he said 20, then 20 years ago, he said, people can't even do that now. But what they're really uncomfortable with is the idea of sin, but like that, we as human beings are sinful, like inherently sinful, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, if you can get across the idea of sin, then you might be able to get the idea uh, across of a savior who died and rose from the dead and so on in the whole Christian gospel. Yeah. 20 years later, that has, re- we've regressed as a human race even further. Now it's not that we don't ask good questions about Jesus and the resurrection or whatever. We just dismiss that. And it's not that we don't understand the doctrine of sin. We can't even conceptualize what evil is anymore. Yeah. We've actually gotten to the point now where we're so delusional in intentionally departing from the knowledge of God, we actually are losing our grip on what it means to be a human being. We don't mm-hmm. actually know what a human being is. One, one professor mm-hmm. who wrote the rise and triumph of modern, of modern individualism, I think it's um, who we've tried to get on the podcast, but we can't get for a couple of semesters here. Shoot. I'm trying to think of his name right now. I can't. Anyway, he, he starts his book on how the sexual revolution changed how we understood humanity. He said, he starts, the book, he, says, he says, a man, a physical man says, I am a woman how did this become an intelligible sentence? Not a true sentence, not a moral sentence, not one that we just accept societally, but he's like, how did that sentence come to mean something? Like, we actually could say, oh, I know what that means. Because throughout virtually all of human history, nobody would have known what that meant. Because the idea that your, your inner psychological experience of yourself is more real than the physical body that you inhabit... In most universities, the anthropology department is a subset of the social sciences. So of all the social sciences, you break it down, you break it down. And anthropology is the study of the evolution of human life and society. So you study human evolution. How do we get here from whatever we were before? And then how did social structures, tribal units, and so on, our, our, our shared genome, our genealogical dispersion in the earth, how did that all go? So that we can understand that And then we can then read that into things like we can do sociology, we can do political science, we can do these other social sciences with this knowledge. Now, so in that sense, anthropology is a subset of a subset of a subset of a subset of learning. In Christian faith, anthropology is everything we know about what it means to be a human being. So in that sense, if you went to the university, it would be like almost all of the subjects. It would be all of the humanities, literature, poetry, theology all of that would be part of anthropology right because mm-hmm. in a sense like anything that helps us know what it means to be a human being but the remember the christian view of the human being is capacious it's large mm-hmm. so poetry is as important part of theological anthropology as is our genetic origins does that make sense mm-hmm. and so in that sense sometimes people will use the word theological anthropology to say how do we understand philosophically and theologically what a human being is if that's not what they're doing in the anthropology departments at the university sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you do a PhD in theological anthropology, you're in the theology department, right? Mm-hmm. If, you do, if you do one on like, you know, how did the first tribes in central Kazakhstan move from this place to that place on the steppes in this many thousands of years ago, that's just a different thing. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? And in some ways, th- that actually reveals something important about how we're thinking about things mm-hmm. because anthropology just means the logos of the anthropos, right? Logos is a Greek word for reason or logic or word, Right. And Anthropos is the generic Greek word for human being. So anthropology just means the logic of the human being or the, or, or our reasonable understanding of the human being. Right now, if you're a secular materialist, all that is, is anthropology. Yeah. Or the anthropology plus the other social sciences, but not really the humanities. The humanities aren't scientific. Mm-hmm. Right. The, however, the humanities know things the social sciences can't know that are true and that must be known to live in a humane way. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's a certain way to pursue anthropology in a materialist sense that will make you inhumane. It makes people mm-hmm. less human by studying humanity, mm-hmm. right? Which is yeah. kind of ironic, right? Yeah. So, um, and, and lots of people have pointed this out that without the humanities, without things like music and poetry and um, theology and philosophy and all these kinds of things you get a really distorted view of the human being yeah. so christians are going be totally for the, the the discipline of anthropology i mean it's good that we study human origins as best we can understand them and how that's developed but that's not what a christian preacher means that's not what a christian means when they say i think understanding uh, like our like our anthropology like what human beings are is fundamental that's what i mean what's fundamental is theological anthropology yeah and i think anthropology as a subset university discipline could really inform that and there's a lot of discussion about that now, like, mm-hmm. um, but that's not the point. Does that make sense? So yeah. when I say anthropology, I'm not just saying, I'm talking about theology instead of science. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, when I say anthropology, I mean that in a the theological sense, and it's capacious, it takes in everything. So it's theology, it's philosophy, it's all of the social sciences, it's all of the humanities, and it's a good bit of the hard sciences. Yeah. All of that is relevant. The reason I say this is because I know somebody somebody asked something about I think there was an AMA question about, he's about is this really a biblical sermon or are you oh, like right. trying to be scientific and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff? Why do we
0: need to include other right. departments the, like philosophy the Bible or enough? psychology? Right?
1: right, and the answer is the Bible is always enough to do what the Bible is trying to do, yes. But that doesn't mean there's no other kinds of knowledge and that Christians shouldn't be integrating that knowledge, right? So part of this whole program was I did a focus group with a bunch of doctors and scientists. Mm-hmm. And we talked about integrating the knowledge of their field that they're wielding out there in the secular realm, relative to this, what the scripture teaches and how do those two things go together? And it's not just to bring the scientific information into the church, which I think is relevant. It's also to integrate theological anthropology with like what one doctor is doing in neurology, what another woman is doing in um, childhood cancer and so on. And, and because some of these people have said, yeah, you know, in the medical field, we do treat people as though the, the university anthropology is the only thing relevant. What's your genetics? How did you evolve? What can we do physically? But what the uh, the childhood oncologist, the pediatric oncologist said was, "But what we find is is that how people feel when they're sick makes a huge difference in how they recover,
0: mm.
1: right? Yeah. Well, that's not part of anthropology. That's part of something else, mm-hmm. right? That's actually part of the humanities. It's about how does human spirit, which is something that is very difficult to quantify neurologically,
0: mm-hmm.
1: function. We know that it affects people's healing, but you can't you can't get that from an EKG, right? Yeah. So um, so so Christianity isn't isn't dealing with something that's like this fanciful unscientific thing. It's dealing with a much more integrative form of logic and thinking and and philosophy and theology that takes in everything. And so when we preach about it in this context, we want to be integrative, not because the Bible needs all this other stuff holding it up, Mm -hmm. but because part of what shows people the Bible's relevance and allows the Bible to have its full weight in society is when Christians integrate the knowledge yeah. So people see how the Bible is doing more than just telling us a, a certain subset of religious things that they allow it to say. The Bible tells us what human beings are. Mm-hmm. And if we look for that in these other fields and we correlate them together, it, it, says, it shows that the Bible is describing reality. It always has. It always will. Because God always does that. And mm-hmm. I think it, when I say it, quote, supports the Bible, it doesn't mean the Bible, quote, needs it. Sure. It's to show. I'm showing how the Bible is relevant to those things so yeah. that people can understand it so that they can see it.
0: Right. And then, and a lot of times take what they hear on Sunday morning and then apply it to how they do their jobs and how they perceive how to like put their, like to take their work and view it through the lens that you're helping them form by yeah. combining those things on Sunday morning.
1: Yeah. Some people, sometimes people really struggle. They're like, okay, I heard that sermon from the Bible. How does that How do I use that when I manage, do my management shift at Target right, or whatever, or I lead my team at Chick-fil-A or I, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. And sometimes they need just to to help them with that. But in order to do that, if they are thought leaders in their field, we have to actually help give them thought leadership in terms Mm -hmm. of like, well, how do you relate these things to each other? Right. Yeah.
0: So can you give a bit of a summary on how the church from history past has wrestled with both Theology, both our theology of Imago day and anthropology. How has this been wrestled with? Not just how, like you mentioned, how we're wrestling yeah. with it a little bit now, but previously.
1: Yeah. So human beings have always struggled with what it means to be incarnate and in the image of God. Right. Incarnate is, of course, another um, is another one of those like uh, Latin words we just say. Right. Incarnate means in meat, mm-hmm. like in fleshed. So there, we're in flesh, like we're physical beings Mm -hmm. and we are simultaneously, um, in God's image. Right. So what does that mean? And so generally speaking, um, whenever you have two somewhat seemingly, um, mysterious things that don't seem like they go together. And then God says, these go together. Mm -hmm. It, that's really hard for us. Yeah. And so generally speaking, we pick one or the other, right? So, um, there've been a number of movements in the church that have said, we are spirits. Right, yeah. and, and the fact that we're in bodies is kind of like a tragedy and an indignity. Mm. Right, That view has taken, taken the name Gnosticism over the years, which comes from the Greek word gnosis or knowledge, mostly because Gnosticism basically said there's this secret knowledge that only we know that's not public, that if you let us initiate in it, you'll be truly spiritual. But part, part of that secret knowledge was the belief that there was something dirty and degraded about living in a physical body, yeah. which led Gnostics to either be ascetics or hedonists. Either they would be really hard on their bodies because the body doesn't matter, mm-hmm. or they would do whatever they felt like with their body because mm-hmm. their body didn't matter, right? And so you had hedonists and you had ascetics. And Christians rejected both of those. And in fact, you begin to see some of this, what's called proto-Gnosticism or early Gnosticism in the Bible. So for example, in Second John 1, 7, 8, the Apostle John says, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh— have gone out into the world as such any such person as a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be fully rewarded. And in first John four, two to three says this, this is how you came to recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So in both of those cases, like, like if you read around that, you're like, why Jesus coming in the flesh? Why is that the big thing? Yeah. And, the, and the answer is because you had these Greek oriented spiritualists who were saying, God is spirit and he would never contaminate himself by becoming a physical body. This idea in Christianity that Jesus became incarnate in flesh, in body, in meat, like that. I mean, think about it, that's So degrading. Why yeah. would the pure spirit of God ever do that? And really what's, you need to throw away your body and realize that you're a pure spirit. and The more you realize you're that pure spirit, right? blah, 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 and so on. Yeah, yeah, John's like, nope, that's the that's the Antichrist. Mm. And so if you're you're listening to somebody who's being moved by and taught by a spirit, and that spirit doesn't acknowledge that Jesus Christ came in a physical human body. He became man, fully man, mm-hmm. right? Then you're talking to somebody who's against Christ, who's against the gospel, who's against God. Mm-hmm. Right. And you see this like in some version of Gnosticism has always existed, right? Um, they become popular and not popular, but like even now there's a form of, of personalism or like subjectivism where we, where people are like, whatever I am in my mind yeah. is what I yeah. really am, which is a version of Gnosticism, right? It's the immaterial, non-physical thing that I call myself is the, re- the thing that's real and everything else is not real. Mm-hmm. And so I can determine everything else from the thing I'm calling real, which is this quote spirit. Mm-hmm. Right. And so people will say, well, this is my psychology or my brain or my neurology, whatever they want to say, but it's, it's their mind. It's the immaterial self that they imagine that they are, or they believe yeah. that they are. And that that determines their nature and that you can do that. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Gnosticism was huge. There lots of versions of that in Greek philosophy, um, the form of something or its spirit was pure and greater than the physical reality of the thing. Mm. There's also myths in Greek theology or Greek mythology about like the degradation of human bodies. From like there were these like the gold creatures that and they failed like and the gods got rid of them. They made silver, and then they ultimately made clay. And yeah, we are those clay creatures and we kind of stink, but we're not worth wiping out. Kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, so there's all kinds of like anti-body. Things And you can imagine like if half the children die before the age of five and p- most people have some kind of chronic ailment because there's no modern medicine, you yeah. live in a fairly physically brutal world. Mm-hmm. The idea that spirit ultimately transcends the horror of the world in which we're living in and the body is this thing that just dies and is wasting away and so on is very attractive. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. So, um So you can see why people believed it, but the, the church fathers and Jesus and the apostles always said, no, 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 you have to understand that we are made in God's image. So we're not just animals. We have Mm -hmm. a moral character. We can't just do anything we want. Our lives do matter, right? It produces meaning and responsibility, and we are enfleshed as these creatures, right? And then how do you you deal with the problem that there seems to be a conflict in the human soul, right? The human condition is what that's been called throughout Western history, at least, Mm -hmm. where like, I want to sin. Like, I want to do things that are immoral. I don't want to live out the image of God, even with the capacities of the image of God. Mm -hmm. So my ability to be rational is from the image of God, but I want to use it in very fleshly ways, right? Yeah. My, right, I'm, or, or I'm embodied in such a way, but my rationality or the image of God inside of me, that's a lot of things, not just my rationality, would say, well, the way you should use, for example, your sexuality is p- to pick one woman, to form a family, to have a comprehensive union, to walk through life together mm-hmm. all the way to the end, to have, to have a covenant together. Rationality dictates that that's justice, but that's not what I physically want to do, yeah. right? And so what do I do with that conflict, right? So you have this idea of the image of God, which is our human nature, we're in flesh in the image of God, but then there's also the human condition. How did I get broken? What's broken? Mm. And how, what do I do with that? And you could say, well, you're just picking on LGBT people. Well, the thing is, is that the LGBT LGBT people are the people who protect everybody else. So if I want to, if I'm heterosexual, and I just want to fornicate if I'm just pro LGBTQ, they're the head of the spear. They protect me because if they're okay, I'm okay. So they're, they're just used as blockers for everybody else. Right. So, um, which I, f- I kind of feel bad about Like people should, I don't think people should be doing that. Right. But, and, but that's so like your average heterosexual fornicator is totally safe. As long as you accept, like I can identify as the opposite gender of my physical body and that that's real. That's more real than my physical body. If, if that's true, then me fornicating, is not wrong. Like, how could you possibly, right? So there's that. You can also see this relative to race. Like one of the responsibilities we don't want to accept is our mutual solidarity with one another as a people that who've come from one blood. Right? So you see this with racial, racial stuff that like, there are some people saying we should have more solidarity than this. How can you treat us this way? And other people saying, why am I responsible for you? Right? This, I mean, this literally goes back to Cain and Abel I my brother's keeper. Right? Like, what is the nature of my relationship? Like, are you your, like, if, if you concede the person is your brother, Then the answer is yes, right? Like the the, the sentence, am I my brother's keeper is literally a nonsensical question, right? Am I Abel's keeper? Now that might make sense. But when you say, am I my brother's keeper? The the very nature of the natural relationship of brothers is that you are their keeper. If you live in a world in which you're not your brother's keeper, you don't live in a world where there are humans, Right. And so those kind of inner, those kind of uh, mandatory relationships of the social nature of human existence, those responsibilities people want to reject, but they also still want the meaning. This is why you get cohabitation. Right. I get yeah. all the meaning of a long-term monogamous relationship without all the responsibilities. I'm going to be here forever. Mm-hmm. Right. But the problem is you don't get all the meaning because what you're doing isn't what it means. And it, it's, and it's unjust. Yeah. So you're committing wickedness, which is a mark, which pushes against your your rejoicing in the meaning, because part of the meaning is this thing that I'm doing means something and is beautiful and good. Mm-hmm. And you say, "Well, my living with my spouse is good because I love it, right?" It, it's it's good in these partialities, but because you don't accept the thing comprehensively, it also is built has built in wickednesses.
0: Yeah. So right? so one of my like more like a broader question then is like, what are some of the devastating implications of getting our anthropology wrong? You've given some examples of what can happen like with someone choosing to cohabitate.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, so people are going to get mad about all these, right? Because Mm -hmm. if I say these people go, Oh, well you can't say that. Right. But this just goes to show how deep a thing this is. Yeah. Right. So, I mean the fact that a seven year old can say, I want to be a boy and she's a little girl and she hasn't even hit puberty yet. And we, can, as we can have a school system that would say, "Oh well, you're just you're a you're, you know you're a boy inside a girl's body. You're a you're but you're a boy. That's what you are. You know you should embrace that. It's monstrous, right? And it's it's a false anthropology, right? A um, hundred million people died in the 20th century under socialism. Pope John Paul II, who was a native of Poland and lived under and suffered under communism for many years, what what he said about socialism was among all of its evils." At the root, it was rooted in an anthropological fallacy. It talked about people and treated people falsely. It, mm-hmm. what, what, what Marxism and socialist doctrine says a human being is isn't what a human being is. What it says their relations to each mm-hmm. other are isn't what they are. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons why the first thing that communists and socialists always attacked was religion and the family. That like the institution of the church, how, how that there's a place that's... Because socialism was fundamentally materialist. So mm-hmm. it denied the Imago Dei. Yeah. That's how why you can put people in gas chambers. That's why you can let people freeze to death in negative 50 below in the Gulag archipelago in Russia and not think a thing of it. They're just, I mean, you got to crack some eggs to make an omelet. Yeah. This idea that human beings are eggs that you can crack to make an omelet is a rejection of the Imago Dei. Yeah. Right. That the, your image of the utopian future is what matters. Right, And whoever gets there gets there, but like, you know, it's fine if we kill people on mm-hmm. the way. Yeah. You see, the Christian could never say that, right? right? For Jesus, the means are the ends. Mm-hmm. And for the socialist, the ends are the means. And so it's a complete reversal of the human idea. And it, and it rejects all of the fundamental natural associations. So once you start looking at all of society as materialist, and that leads you to be skeptical about natural affection, yeah. And love yeah. as a spiritual identity, then you think, oh, well, what is the relationship between a mother and their child? Well, it's economic, right? The mm-hmm. child needs the mother. The mother, in some sense, wants the child, right? And so, right? She gets fulfillment. The child gets food. Yeah. And you like flatten out the whole world so that nothing really means anything other than it's like, homo economicus like it's it's economic end or advantage mm-hmm. and then you say see we're all just competing against each other economically therefore the lower classes are really in this like struggle to death for the upper classes and you, you see how this is going right and it, but it starts with this fundamental denial of what human beings are that like yeah. love exists between us we have natural affection human beings form families that's the fundamental human unit that is the most humanizing unit yeah it's necessary to raise children and families with a father and a mother and hopefully siblings, as far as fertility allows, because what that allows for is the full humanization of children, mm-hmm. that they become full human beings in the spiritual sense, in the moral sense, in the fullness of heart. And communism had no eyes to see any of that. Yeah. They wanted to put kids in, like, raise kids in institutions and crap like that. They, they, they couldn't understand why being at a mother's breast would matter for a baby. Yeah, And you're like, how could anybody be that stupid? You know, like, people might listen out and look, I'm an atheist. I'm a materialist. But I'm not that stupid. Well, you're not that stupid because you didn't follow the logic far enough. Like this is what Mm -hmm. happens to people when they deny fundamental premises about humanity. Like, and part of it is every atheist in America is, is a lapsed Christian and they don't know it. Like everything in the West is a response and a reaction to Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so people retain so much Christianity, even when they get rid of the theology. So people don't realize that what's good, like if you can be a materialist in America and you don't even know that what's good about your anthropology came from Christianity Mm -hmm. and what's wrong with it is what you got rid of from Christianity. Right. And, but I, and I'm not just trying to be mean to people who aren't Christians because the fact is, is that most Christians have a really screwed up anthropology. Mm-hmm. But I will say this, that a lot of that screwed up anthropology came from the world and it infected yeah. the church.
0: Yeah.
1: But it's also true that a lot of times in the history of the church, we have not had a good anthropology. We've been too spiritualistic, too dualistic. Our views of the body and human development have been really narrow. Yeah. So, I mean, there's enough blame to go around. Yeah. So, so there's, I mean, there's from the smallest scale to the largest scale, there are incredible, horrifying, enormous implications. Mm-hmm. But the opposite is true as well. Where we get the doctrine of humanity right, there's a lot of beautiful flourishing. Yeah. And one of the ways I would say that's happened at High Point Church is I tried to, I've tried to preach the good of covenantal marriage, mm-hmm. the receiving of children, how that's like a death that brings a life. Yeah. And that it's natural in, these, in this cycle of being. And losing your youth in devotion to one another and in devotion to children and so on is a good mm-hmm. and that you don't have to win at everything. You can like enjoy raising children together yeah. and that accepting the natural nature of that even though it's not very exotic is is wholesomely good, mm-hmm. right? And what I've seen in High Point Church is people daring to get married, people daring to have children. Yeah. And um, a number of Christian theologians have said that having a child is the ultimate act of hope. And I think that's true. So, yeah. so I have I have seen like because like there a lot of people are delaying marriage. Like younger people delay marriage until twenty eight or something like that, and then they're trying to have kids in their mid thirties, and then they find out they're more infertile than they thought, and now they're devastated in later life because they didn't yeah. have the family they'd hoped for. And um, I've tried to reverse that, and we've seen a lot of beautiful success. I think, and, mm-hmm. and, it, and it came from getting your anthropology right, so that you could get your sexuality right, so that you could get your family theology right, so that you could get your your child theology about children, right? Like what yeah. is a child? And like to get all that straightened out. And if you get straightened out, like, Oh my gosh, people can live it out. Yeah. But if you, be- if you believe that everything's materialist and a child is an imposition on your freedom, mm-hmm. well then what are you going to, how are you going to live? You're going to live as though that's true. Yeah. And it's terrifying and terrible.
0: Yeah. So earlier, well, we've, we've talked about how, like, there's a number of ways that this like getting this right will affect our lives. um And when I asked you these questions earlier, you came up with this very long list of very practical, quite like questions that we may come across in our minds that are related to this. As examples of like the kinds of things we can ask, will you share those?
1: Yeah. So I so you wrote the question. How how does what we cover today connect to our daily lives? I'm like, oh my gosh, everything, everything, everything. everything. <laughs> so so uh, let me let me say a little bit. I said sure. prepare this. Is that is that um, this doctrine literally connects to everything in every way. The only reason we don't know this is because our anthropology is generally assumed and absorbed. Those two words are important. Assumed and absorbed. Mm -hmm. So like what you think about what a human being is, you may like, well, why do I have to cover this church? Like, this is the, because your anthropology is assumed and, and absorbed, and those those aren't necessarily good, right? Mm-hmm. Like we assume what we, we think we understand human beings, and then we absorb whatever we absorb from our lives, from our families, and so on. And sometimes that's right. Sometimes it's really wrong. Mm-hmm. And so to start with the Christian doctrine and understanding of what a human being is is like has to change us on the level of feelings, yeah. Because what we think about humans comes up in our intuitions more than our rational thought, right? But in terms of our rational thought, be like, well, Nick, what do I apply this to? So here's the list I came up with. Mm -hmm. What time should I go to bed? Should I get a tattoo? Should I cremate my mother's remains? Should I ride a motorcycle? Should I stay single or get married? Should you sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend? Can you be a woman if you were born in a male body? Why do I have to tell the truth? Should I play football at the highest level I'm able or volleyball? What do I owe my family? What is the right form of government? Should people use or own firearms? Should we outlaw sugar? Should students write down notes by hands with pens or type them out on computers? Because you can type more notes if you type it out, but you remember more if you write it with Mm -hmm. your hand, right? Um, What time of day should we do our devotions? How should worship a worship service be structured in terms of posture, elements, consecration, concentration enhancements, and so on. Should anybody use smartphones? Should you be able to pick out your friends and your spouse, or should they be assigned to you so that we could pursue genetic and social equity? Is racism correct or mistaken? Are men better than women or different and in what ways? Is it better to live longer or to live a morally, in a morally noble way? Imagine you're, you live in a communist nation and in a situation where nobility could get you killed. Should you pick long life or should you pick nobility? Are people poor because they need discipline or because they need more resources? And so on. I mean, you just could go on and yeah. on forever. Yeah. And all of these questions are essentially, what's a human being? The yeah. first question is, what's a human being?
0: Yeah. So pastorally, like I look at, how would you answer someone if they're like, I could do this for literally everything. How do I not go crazy? How do I not just wonder how to take a step? Like, like the sugar question. I mean, Mm -hmm. like, do I cut out sugar or not? Like I could spend days thinking on that one. And that's just like one, one aspect of my life. Like how, how do you not get overwhelmed or like to determine what you should do?
1: Well, I mean, thinking morally is by its very nature overwhelming, right? If you Mm -hmm. believe that there are moral principles in the world, there is such a thing as right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And you believe that it functions on a level of love. So it's functioning on a very fine level. Mm -hmm. That means everything that you do in your life is right or wrong, right? Or or in some way, in some magnitude. And that is by itself overwhelming. So the minute you admit that you're a moral creature, which is necessary once you admit that your life has any meaning, which everybody wants to believe right? It Mm -hmm. it entails morality. And then you're, you're locked into more meaning than you want, right? So I think everybody's stuck with that. The question is, is that, so how do you not get overwhelmed? Well, the, the best way to not get overwhelmed is to have the proper shortcuts rather than bad shortcuts, right? So the way God's designed your mind to work is to have fast thinking in your intuitions and slow thinking in your reasoned rationality. So what you do is, is you, you, with your reasoned rationality, you think this through as deeply as you can, mm-hmm. and as you do that, you like let it work its way into your soul and your heart and your mind and so on in such a way as that your intuitions start to change. Now your intuitions take barely any mental energy; they happen right. immediately. Yeah. But what happens is, is they, they, they. It's very, it's a very efficient system, but it requires meticulous cal- calibration. It's kind of like playing a piano, like tuning a piano can be kind of labor intensive. You're mm-hmm. like working on the strings; you got to get them exactly right. Once that guy finishes tuning the piano and the pianist sits down and starts playing it goes it's really it's almost effortless yeah right so the work we do in theology and in spiritual discipline and so on and learning we're tuning the piano i was talking with one person about a tattoo right he was like i think i'm gonna get a really awesome tattoo this person was an artist and they're like going me get this tattoo this is what i'm thinking right and he's like what do you think about that i was like do you really want to know what i think about that he's like yeah i really want to know i was like because once I tell you, you can't unhear it. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah. Okay. I said, you're an artist. Yes. Okay. I think here's, here's a question to ask yourself. Is your physical body a piece of art or is your physical body a canvas?
0: Hmm.
1: Right? Because if you believe your body's a canvas, right, then shoot. Yeah. Tattoos, right? If your body is itself a work of art, right, you're spray painting the art essentially. You know what I mean? Like somebody puts like this great, like bronze statue in a, in a, like this place in a city and somebody comes in like spray paints, like they're graffiti Mm -hmm, on. it, And you're kind of like that takes away from the art. It doesn't really add to it. Yeah. Now some people, that's kind of extremist way to think about it. Okay. But like, But, you know, that might be a good place to start.
0: Right. Well, and for you, that's how you've thought this through, at least that question through Mm -hmm. for yourself. And somebody asked you for your opinion, so you shared it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think some of these questions, Christians will disagree on the result, but I still think they can think it through by the right criteria. Yeah. So like the early Christians were adamantly against cremation. Mm -hmm. They believed that it was morally wrong. But they lived in a culture that was materialist and they they believed that once you burned up the body it was gone forever because the souls the souls of people went to Tartarus and that was all there was yeah and so burying people whole and burying them facing the east was a was a witness to the resurrection in burial yeah and for them it was really important that's why they were willing to like carve out like catacombs under the city of Rome mm-hmm. and that that was a like kind of a novel thing because they're like no we're gonna bury people and um so, but there are Christians now who are kind of like, "Look, G- Jesus can raise anybody from anything," mm-hmm. and um, I think I don't I don't think that that I don't think it's a witness to anything, and I don't think God needs us. I mean, everybody decomposes. Right. I mean, God's going to literally have to reconstitute the whole human body, right? Like whether or not you can locate all your bones is not a thing,
0: right? And this may, I mean, this may be a crude way to talk about it, but like it may be if, if you're thinking more about how to embrace your humanness through like stewarding your finance as well. And like, like what God has given you that way. Mm -hmm. And it's cheaper to cremate versus having Mm -hmm. like a burial. Like that, that might be the, the, the way in which you're thinking through and processing to come to that conclusion.
1: Yeah. If you give $3,000 to a friend who's trying to adopt instead of pay the extra to have somebody buried. Right. Is that right? Yeah. You know, or is that too instrumentalist a way to think about it, right? Right. Obviously, these are complicated questions, but yeah. like, I think the smartphone question is another one. Should anybody have a smartphone? Well, maybe you could answer that yes or no, but I think any wise Christian would say about a smartphone, there are ways of having a smartphone and there are ways no Christian should have a smartphone. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you might be able to argue that um, social media isn't inherently inhuman. I think it's might. I don't think it's inherently inhuman. I think it might be inherently inhuman given the condition we're in. If we were just embodied in the image of God and we weren't broken, then maybe social media would be a really cool way to share all of our accomplishments with each other. We could all mutually rejoice in each other's lives in beautiful upbuilding kinds mm-hmm. of ways. But given the fall, I think it might be inhuman to think that those tools could produce good.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? Yeah. Um, I, for example, I could imagine non-fallen humans that some form of socialism might work with. Mm-hmm. That might work. I'm not sure. I think it's probably, the whole system is probably unjust, but I think people could choose full cooperation and forego ownership. I mean, Christians have done that. They were called monasteries. Mm, Right. Right? Yeah. But it was voluntary, but Mm -hmm. it existed, right? And so, um, so I can see, like, so I can see some Christians saying, like, yeah, I mean, smartphones are fine. Others being like, look, you should, we should have, we could make it, we should build our own flip phones Mm because this is a poison, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that that's probably true. But I also think that, christians could disagree on like when you should turn your phone off should you be able to bring it to the dinner table when do you like when you go out with friends should you only bring one smartphone with you and leave all the rest at the house you meet at yeah or does everybody else turn theirs off right or what are you allowed to check a text should you check a text if you're out to eat with friends other than your babysitter Mm
0: -hmm. right
1: like um should you etc right does that make sense yeah and so that what that comes down to are questions of like what's a human being you're like okay but then it's questions like how do human beings develop how do they build habits? How do they, like if you, yeah. if you shop on your phone, whenever you go take a break, in about 19 days, you have neurological ruts you're building for that. So that every time you take a break, you'll want to, you'll crave shopping on your phone. Yeah. Hmm. And now that's becoming increasingly automatic. You're becoming less free. Right. Yeah. And it's harder to break that after mm-hmm. because your brain's trying to help you. You're like, oh, this is what we do. So I'll make a pattern. Mm-hmm. And then it'll be easier. I mean, God made your <laughs> brain to function a way to help you. Yeah. The problem is, is what it does is it it locks in everything. Yeah. And so every time you engage in a bad habit, something that's really not good for you, it becomes increasingly more materialistically instantiated in your soul, mm-hmm. like in your being, in your mind. Mm-hmm. And then it's harder to break. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so in that sense, you're like, well, do smartphones deform us by the very system and structure of how they exist? You see, that's a question of, well, what are you? How are you formed as a human being?
0: Yeah.
1: How do you learn things? How do things become habits? How is your attention drawn to some things rather than others? Like the fact that, like it doesn't, you could imagine a world in which we weren't drawn to video over audio. But if I show you a video and I'm playing an audio and I say, pay attention to this audio, while I'm showing you this video, then maybe you can do it. I certainly can't. Yeah. I did that in a sermon once yeah, where I, I played that. like a video and I was like reading something from John Owen. It was like, what did I read from John Owen? I was like, <laughs> we have no idea, right? Like that's, I was trying to say, look, you can say what you want about what you wish you were, but you are the kind of creature that if I hit you two of your senses, including your sense of sight, which is your strongest sense, mm-hmm. and then I try to hit one of your other senses that I'm already using with the other thing, you can't do it. Yeah. No matter how much you want to believe you can. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I, I've tried, I tried for a good part of my adult life to sleep six hours a night because I believe that if I wanted to do it bad enough, I could do it.
0: Like only six hours? You're only saying? six yeah. hours,
1: right. But my physical body requires eight. Yeah. And I have tried, I want those two hours so bad and I just can't have them. Yeah. Because this is the flesh. I mean, like this is the constitution I have. Mm-hmm. There's some people sleep four hours, they're fine. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I'm I, I'm not one of them and I'm and, and like, I'm one of them, I that be like, I could be angry about this but what can you do? This is, I'm embodied. God chose this for me. It's not an injustice. It's Mm -hmm. not an indignity. Like when I'm raised from the dead, I'll be in a body. Yeah. God thinks that bodies are fine, that they're good material being in material isn't bad. Yeah. And so like these kinds of realizations are really important. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think for like a lot of people feel really um, negative about their physical bodies. Like, like I can't imagine trying to be a woman in our culture where women are so objectified by this vibe, by the fine differences in their looks. Hmm. You know i remember older like older men are always like more sanguine about this but like i remember talking with this younger guy in california i was doing a ministry thing there and he's like yeah i'm dating this girl she's really nice she's really godly she's like i'm just a," he's like i'm just a little concerned like i don't know if she's like good looking enough mm-hmm. like i just feel like maybe she's just not maybe she's just not pretty enough to like keep my attention or whatever and i was like is she female <laughs> You know, like, like you know, yeah. like in, in, like in a young guy's mind where everything's about competition in a way they don't even understand themselves, mm-hmm. they're looking at this other woman and they're, you know, like, and everybody's pretty when they're young. And so like when you're in your forties, you're like, yeah, if you're 20, you're just good looking. I mean, it's cause you just have shiny skin and shiny hair. Like mm-hmm. it's simple. And so you're, I'm like, is she a woman? Does she have the normal parts women have? And he's like, well, yeah. I was like, I don't understand the problem. Mm-hmm. Like. God made your physical, your hum, human embodied maleness drawn to her femaleness,
0: mm-hmm.
1: not her height. Like, yeah. what are you talking about? Yeah. And on one of he's kind of like, you're not playing fair because he knows I know what he means.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I know that in the flesh... He wants the highest status woman who looks the most neonatous and fertile, and like he's in competition with these other males because, in some ways, he thinks he's just an evolved ape, and on, he just wants to get the top one. And he wants to—he would love to have children with seventy-four of them so that all the babies of the next generation could be made his image. Mm-hmm. Like, I get that, I get that. <laughs> but like, on another level, there is this reality that like, if you know you are a human being, you were made for the woman, and the woman was made for the man, and she is enough because she's a woman. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And he's kind of like, okay, I don't like that answer. Yeah. But what, I, what was I trying to do as a pastor? I was trying to restore his anthropology. That's what I was trying to do. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So the last question I want to wrap up here with is how does all that we talked about today connect to the gospel? We've talked about how it mm-hmm. connects to our lives and how we should be thinking through what we're doing, but how does it relate to what Jesus has done for us?
1: So Athanasius, a church um, father from the early centuries, said once, anything that is not assumed is not redeemed. He was talking about the, the, what it, mean, it meant that Christ was a human being. And he said, because there were all these people trying to understand what, what it meant for Jesus to be man, and they're like, well, his divinity resided in his rationality. So he didn't take on human rationality. He, mm. he was the rationality. And Athanasius was like, no, 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 no. You have to believe that Jesus, that Jesus was 100% fully human and 100% fully God and his divine nature inhabited his humanity in a way that the two were one, but distinguishable. Because his argument was, for Jesus to die for us fully, to redeem us fully, he had to be with us fully, as a mm-hmm. full human being. Yeah. It's why Gnosticism was a heresy. If Jesus didn't take on the body, then the body's not redeemed. Yeah. And the body is to be redeemed, because we believe, remember, Christians don't believe that we'll be spirits hovering in a in clouds, we believe that God will remake the heavens and the earth. He will raise us bodily, reunite us with our immaterial selves, what we call souls, and we will live as that kind of a composite, comprehensive being embodied forever in a new heavens and a new earth. Mm-hmm. Eating from a tree of life. I don't think those things, some of those things I think are metaphorical, but I don't think that they're just metaphors. Yeah. Um, the, the idea that we're going to be raised from the dead is not a metaphor. That's a literal thing. It's said, it's said, it's shown in places like Revelation, but it's said explicitly in places like 1 Corinthians 15. And so we're going to be embodied forever, right? So Jesus being fully man was critical to him being our savior. It also affirmed us as infleshed beings. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of like that kind of stuff that you get into theologically, right? But it's also important to recognize this, that um, Jesus is a whole savior. He's a capacious or comprehensive savior. He's come to save us in our entirety. Mm -hmm. And so any way that you don't really understand your humanity you can't even conceptualize how he's saving you in that. Mm. And it's really hard to have any faith about it. Yeah. And so if you like if you if you believe, for example, that like wounds can't be healed, like emotional wounds can't really be healed. Mm. Then Jesus dying as a human being to heal us as human beings, which includes the fact that we we inhabit and we hold on to these emotional wounds, right? We won't even think in those terms. We'll mm-hmm. just be like, well he saved me from my sins, I won't go to hell. Well, he did do that and you won't go to hell and that's fantastic because you'll be in a body in hell and burning is terrible, okay? like So that is part of you being embodied and you living forever and you having the image of God, right? Part of the reason we can believe, for example, in damnation is because human beings develop, right? We can't help but develop. Either we're developing to the beatific vision, we're we're developing to become like the God we were made to image Mm -hmm. or we're developing away from that God towards the selfish standards of Satan, right? I didn't mean to alliterate that so much but like... (laughs) You know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. damnation in a sense is God judicially confirming what we've developmentally chosen for ourselves. Yeah. And so all of these are rooted in these like human categories. Godliness is about like building the habits of character. Like the, the, the apostles couldn't have said, didn't say, and couldn't have known that what we do with our souls gets written on our physical brains and that there's this composite nature too. They didn't know all that, but they knew that habits built character. They knew that pursuing certain practices like prayer changed the way we felt and thought about things. They understood that like focusing deeply on God or worshiping or singing, that the multisensory artistic nature of singing tapped into more than just one part of us. Why did God demand that human beings be singers of his praise? Like Where did this come from? This idea that poetry, singing, as well as content should be part of our adoration of him. Mm -hmm. Well, God knew that the multisensory nature of worship would bind us to a more deeply in character. That's why it says use instruments and stand up and clap your hands right. and raise your hands into the air and kneel and put your face down and rend- tear your garments when you're mm-hmm. mourning to like totally embody in your in fleshness what the image of God is doing in you and mm-hmm. through you and pointing you back to God. So, I mean, you just, when I say literally everything, I literally, literally, literally mean <laughs> literally, literally everything relates to our understanding of what we are as human beings mm-hmm. and if you don't like calling it theological anthropology whatever i don't care mm-hmm. my desire for people as their pastors to say what you intuitively think about yourself and your assumptions and you, what you've absorbed about what a human being is is dictating to you what your theology is mm-hmm. think about it this way i saw i was watching this video one time about men in sexual addictions and one of them said I've spent 60 years of my life trying to scrub my father's face off of the face of God. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the things he didn't even really realize for decades of his life was that the way his father treated him is the way he thought God would treat him. And so he was all wrapped up in that. Yeah. Right. To a much wider, more general extent. That's true for all of us. What we have assumed and absorbed about hum- what it means to be a human being is controlling ways that we don't even understand about what we can believe about God, what we can believe about God. Relationships, what we can believe about family, what we can believe about being loved and receiving love, what we can believe about whether or not we're worth something or whether we're worthless. All of that is like wrapped up really deeply in our understanding of our humanity. And most of that didn't come from Jesus telling us it came from how we have assumed things are
0: yeah.
1: based on how we've experienced the world, what we've absorbed. And so our view of humanity is going to be really distorted because we live in a fallen world. Mm-hmm. And so what we absorbed is going to be distorted and that's terrible yeah, and so God is speaking to us about a theological anthropology all through the Bible, including giving His Son as a human being, so that as to rehabilitate the fact that it says in Ephesians four, we were we were created to be like Him in righteousness and holiness and true yeah. righteousness and holiness. So, the great gift—I mean, one of the things people talk about blessing about the, the Bible talks about blessing, and the Bible talks about blessing a lot, and all that's rooted in our humanity, and that's why the great blessing is that we can participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world. The great blessing is that we can live in true righteousness and holiness. Mm -hmm. You're like, well, how is that a big blessing? Well, what is true righteousness and holiness? Holiness is to be separate. That is what we were made for. That is like God, the imago Dei, right? Mm -hmm. And true righteousness, meaning we're really living in right relationship to what we were meant to be in the creation that we're in. That is, we would be fully ourselves. That is what Ignatius said. The glory of God is man fully alive that we are fully redeemed to be human beings. That's the blessing. The blessing of salvation is to be remade into the human being we were always meant to be with the addition of really knowing what it's like to be in Christ, right? Yeah. And then to then be glorified as that human being in final redemption mm. so that we are a image-bearing, infleshed, saved, changed, transformed, ordered, glorified, embodied, image-bearing human being now free of the curse. Yeah living out our nature fully in God's presence to do what He always made us to be and enjoying him forever and enjoying each other forever. Mm. Like that is the blessing. Like, yes. yeah, he can give you money and crap like that too. Yeah. It's, it's great. But it's the, it's re giving you your humanity, yeah. which is salvation. Yeah. Right. And being forgiven of sins, isn't a really important part of that, but freeing you from the wider aspects of damnation is the whole of it.
0: Mm.
1: You know, So I just, I feel like the more we widen our theological anthropology, the more we see about ourselves, the more we see about God. And I believe that what that produces is better self-understanding, which allows you to be healed, changed, to grow, Mm -hmm. to have good relationships with each other, to be more like humble. But it also expands immensely your ability to adore God and to enjoy God and to worship God and to understand why God's plan is so strange because his plan is so comprehensive. Yeah. Because we are comprehensive.
0: It's good. Thanks. Thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of Engage and Equip. If there's a topic, again, that you would like for us to discuss, send it to podcast at highpointchurch.org. Otherwise, we will have you join us on our next podcast. See you guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like those. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thank you for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.